In the spring of 1942, General Douglas MacArthur was commanded by President Roosevelt to withdraw the American troops from the Philippine Islands. A Japanese takeover seemed imminent. But before MacArthur left for Australia, he promised the Filipino people, I will return. At the time, MacArthur was criticized by many Americans for his egotistical phrasing of his promise. He put it in the first person, I will return. But that's not how the Filipino people took the general's promise. The fact he made it personal boosted their morale. Throughout the enemy's occupation, they had confidence. They knew that MacArthur was a man of his word and that he wouldn't break his promise. Well, tonight we're going to study Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. He will be leaving them soon. And he wants to ensure them that he's going to return. On the night before the cross in the upper room, Jesus promised his followers, I will come again. And Jesus is a man of his word. Thus his promise has boosted the morale of believers for the last 2,000 years. Like the Filipinos in World War II, we also live behind enemy lines. And it's our general's personal promise that keeps us from losing heart. He will return. By the way, Douglas MacArthur did return to the Filipino islands two and a half years later. He kept his promise. He defeated the Japanese and he liberated the Philippines. And one day, Jesus also will keep his promise. He'll come again. He'll defeat the armies that have rallied against him and he'll liberate our world from the influences of Satan. Well, here in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. And his words disturbed them. In this one night, Jesus turns their notions of greatness topsy-turvy. He washes their feet. He points to Judas as a traitor. He even reveals Peter's cowardice. In fact, four different disciples, Peter and Thomas and Philip and Judas, are so distressed that they ask Jesus questions. The disciples are confused. They're desperate. They need encouragement. And Jesus provides it here in chapter 14. Well, John chapter 14 begins, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Life on earth is about to get rough for these disciples. And so Jesus turns their eyes to heaven. They're going home soon. Robert Frost defined home as the place where no matter where you've been or what you've done, when you arrive, they have to take you in. Home is where you can let your hair down, where you can be yourself. It's where you find love and acceptance. And if you're a Christian, you are headed home. Do you know that? You are. Heaven is our home, and Jesus has a place for us. In fact, he promises us a mansion. But this may not be what you think. When I envision a mansion, I think of the Biltmore House up in Asheville, North Carolina, or the Hearst Castle in California. But the Greek word translated mansion, monai, literally means rooms. It's from the root word to stay. You could translate it staying places. A monai is simply a place to stay. Realize Jesus isn't promising us something you'd see on MTV Cribs. A swimming pool and a home theater and an indoor gym aren't standard amenities in heaven. When Jesus promises us a mansion, he's simply saying a staying place, a place to stay. He's comforting us with the assurance that there is a room for us in his father's house. Think about it. It might be more like hell than heaven if God stuck you in some huge, cavernous, stately mausoleum. Especially if part of your responsibility was to mow its 40 acres or to wash all its floors and windows, how would you like that task for all eternity? That's not my idea of heaven. There's an old maxim, home is a man's castle. 
but an actual castle might be more of a hassle. I have no doubt that heaven will be comfortable, but I doubt it'll be gaudy. Built into the outside walls of Solomon's temple, the temple of Jesus' day, were 38 chambers. These were dwelling places for the priests and for the Levites. At times they were allowed to stay right there in the house of God. In the Middle East today, after Palestinian children marry and have families, it's customary for them to move back in with their father. They stay with their family. In fact, you can drive through northern Israel and you'll see additions to the tops of houses. When a kid goes out and gets married, they just add a floor to their house. It becomes the next family's dwelling place. And this is the imagery that Jesus is conjuring up here with this word, staying places. Not necessarily stately, custom-built homes, but intimacy and fellowship. That's what he's trying to communicate. He's saying that in heaven, we'll live under the Father's roof. We'll eat at the Father's table. We'll live with our Heavenly Father. Isn't that glorious? On earth, Jesus was a carpenter, perhaps the kind that built houses. Interestingly, in heaven, he's involved in the same trade, and he's preparing a place for all eternity. It's in addition to the Father's house that he has for you. Today, Jesus is in heaven. What is he doing? He's working hard on your place to stay. He tells us in verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, you hear the intimacy there? He wants us to be where he is. He wants us to have a place in his father's house. You know, this world is a beautiful place, and God created it in just six days. Well, you know, Jesus has been working on our place in heaven for the last 2,000 years. If he created this world in six days, can you imagine what he's done in the last 2,000 years? We can only imagine the glories that await us. There's an old hymn with the following lyrics. Who could mind the journey when the road leads home? When the road of life gets rough, when you run into potholes and roadblocks, remember where the road ultimately leads. Guys, we're headed home. Jesus gave us a promise, and he doesn't go back on his word. Well, in verse 4, Jesus says, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And that's when Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Thomas, in essence, is asking for a road map, a GPS. He's thinking a local, earthly destination. He doesn't realize that heaven will be out of this world. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, here's a basic tenet. Here's a foundational principle of Christianity. Understand, our faith it's not based on a code of ethics. It's not faith in a set of doctrines. Christianity is a person. You don't become a Christian by following Jesus' teachings. You become a Christian by receiving Jesus himself personally. Our faith is a faith in a person. Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. He doesn't just speak to us the truth. He is the truth. He doesn't just give us life. He is the life. God's way is revealed. His truth is received. His life is released when we receive Jesus. He's the way that keeps on going. He's the truth that keeps us knowing. He's the life that keeps us growing. We all need Jesus. And notice too, Jesus is not a way or a truth or a life. He is the way in the truth in the life. He's not one of many roads that lead to God. Jesus is the only road. Jesus puts it plainly. No one comes to the Father except through me. But you can argue, wait a minute, Pastor Sandy, that sounds pretty narrow-minded. And you're right. It's very narrow. No one can come to the Father except through me. Why would God want to be so exclusive? Have you ever noticed how the IRS is so open-minded? Have you ever noticed this? 
This year, rather than copy my income off of the W-2 form, I'm just going to estimate. I'm going to go low. And when it comes to dependence, I'm putting down the 10 staff members we got here around Calvary Chapel. And when I figure my tax, I'm not bothering with the tables. I'm just going to pay what seems fair to me, okay? That'd be, that's all right. And if you're an IRS agent, please know I'm just kidding. Please know I'm just kidding. Everybody knows the Internal Revenue Service has rules. They don't budge. It's black or white. It's right or wrong. Former heavyweight boxing champ Joe Lewis once once asked, Joe, who hit you the hardest during your ring career? Joe Lewis replied, Uncle Sam. (laughs) My point is, is there are a lot of issues in life, like the tax code, that aren't open to interpretation. You don't get to negotiate your way to heaven. God has a way. God has established a way, not you. And God has made the entrance very narrow. You don't make deals with God. It's his way or the highway, friend. You come to God on his terms, not yours. In my early years as a Christian, we'd all hold up our index finger as a sign. We'd all say one way. One way to Jesus. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through our Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Here's the longing of every human heart, whether we're conscious of it or not. Show us the Father. No one is satisfied until they know the God who made them. And then Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And here again, Jesus asserts his deity. He was God incarnate. He was God in human skin. Though three separate persons, the members of the Godhead, Godhead are of one substance. This means that to see Jesus was to see the Father. Both are fully God. And for three and a half years, Philip had walked with his creator, along the grassy paths in Galilee, down the dirt roads of Judea. And yet never had it dawned on Philip, who was really by his side. Philip had walked with God. Jesus says, didn't you realize it, Philip? Didn't you know? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Both the words of Jesus and his works had testified that he was God. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, one of the reasons the disciples were so depressed over all this talk of Jesus' departure, is that they interpreted it as a setback for their movement, for their cause. Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem had sparked an interest among the masses. Momentum was building for Jesus. And now he's telling us that he's leaving, that he's departing? Just when the ball gets rolling, you're leaving? What's the deal? This would be like the Braves loading the bases. For Freddie Freeman, the cleanup hitter, the Braves' best hitter. And yet instead of grabbing a bat, Freddie decides to leave for Disney World. What's the deal with that, Freddie? The disciples are thinking, why would Jesus leave us now? How can we possibly continue without him? Jesus had just said to them, believe me for the sake of the works. The disciples had Witnessed wonder after wonder, miracle after miracle. And yet now Jesus is predicting that they'll perform even greater miracles themselves. How can this be? And yet when you read the book of Acts, this is exactly what happened. 
In terms of quantity, 12 disciples scattered around the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will accomplish more than one man fixed in Israel. And here's the promise, verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, here's a promise with one stipulation. God will do whatever you ask if you pray in Jesus' name. Next Thursday, I'm going to head to Augusta National to attend the Masters. Pretty excited about it. And I'm going to go up to the gate with no money, with no ticket, with no right to be there in and of myself, with only a name. And not mine. My son Mac works at Augusta National. And his employment gains for me my ticket. So at the gate, my name will be unimportant. But his name is going to unlock the vault. There's still rules that govern the ticket's use. And my agreement with Mac is to keep those rules. But I'd never get those tickets unless I came in Mac's name. And believe me, this arrangement glorifies the Son. Indeed it does. Man, oh man, getting to that youngest one was worth all the hassles with the first three. Old Mac, the goose that laid the golden egg, finally got to him. Believe me, this arrangement glorifies the youngest son, that's for sure. In our family, the little brother is much appreciated, trust me. And this is the way it is in God's family. The father wants to glorify the son, so how does he do it? He puts the tickets in his name. That's what God has done. Your ticket, whatever you ask, is in his name, not yours. And knowing this determines how you come, even what you ask. You don't come to God's gate with a haughty, reckless request. You don't come with some hedonistic request. There's still rules associated with the ticket's use. But all that gets taken care of when you come humbly and when you come trusting, knowing that your name is not what's important. And when the tickets are in hand, you know that all the glory goes to the name that got you those tickets, the name of Jesus. Well, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And here is a good way to say thanks. Remember, it's not enough to love some way, someone in ways that are convenient for you. True love always loves the other person in the way they want or need to be loved. And thus, if you love Jesus, you'll show him by doing what he commands, not just what's easy for you. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says. Love me in the way I want to be loved, in the way I define love. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Now, in sports, there are players who specialize in coming off the bench. In basketball, it's the sixth man. Football has the nickel back. In baseball, there's the pinch hitter. These guys make a living as a substitute. They're what you could call super subs. And Jesus also has a super substitute. This is why his departure wasn't a setback. He had a supernatural sub that took his place. Jesus will ascend back to heaven, but the Holy Spirit will take up where Jesus leaves off. He's with the disciples forever, Jesus says. Notice this word helper in the Greek language, it's parakletos, which means to come alongside, to assist. In the Greek courts, the parakletos was the attorney appointed by the court to head up the case for the defendant. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is our court-appointed attorney. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, whereas the Spirit assists in our representation. I guess you could say he serves the vital role of co-counsel to Jesus. Here's my best illustration of the Holy Spirit. He's like the White House Secret Service. 
You know those guys? Everywhere the president goes, he has bodyguards. These are the guys that are willing to take a bullet for the commander-in-chief. And if I looked through spiritual eyes tonight, guess what I'd see around you? I'd see somebody wearing a dark suit with sunglasses. Somebody's got an earpiece in their ear, and they got a bulge under their coat. They're packing. And guess who it is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is our bodyguard. He's the one who comes alongside us to help us, to assist us, to protect us. And notice, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper. In the Greek, it means another of the same kind. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes up where Jesus leaves off. He has the same goals, the same methods, the same nature as did Jesus. When the Spirit came, no one puts up under new management. Why? Because nothing really changed. God intended for the disciples to have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that they had had with Jesus, just without the physical constraints that limited Jesus on earth. Of course, this would require that the disciples pray and have faith and live spiritually oriented rather than physically oriented. Certainly, the disciples are going to miss Jesus, but the team is going to improve because the Holy Spirit will come off the bench and he'll provide us what we need. In verse 17, Jesus introduces the helper, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice the Holy Spirit is with you. Prior to our conversion, he comes alongside us to convict us of sin, to point us to the Savior. But once we embrace Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit moves in you. He was with you, now he's in you. God's Spirit resides in your spirit. He's the witness. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit that we are children of God. This is where the witness comes from, the Spirit's presence in our lives. The Holy Spirit is with us. He's in us. And you remember, there's a third experience we can have with the Holy Spirit. Later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon them with power. The Spirit of God he does so many things in our lives. He reveals to us the presence of God. He conveys to us the peace of God. He releases upon us the power of God. He bestows in our lives the gifts of God. He generates the fruits of God. He brings the comfort of God. He administers the correction of God when we need it. He teaches us the truth of God. Thus, he's called the spirit of truth. You need to make the Holy Spirit your friend. You need a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and I do too. Today, a believer has the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that the disciples had with Jesus. But don't expect your unbelieving friends to understand. For Jesus says the world neither sees him nor knows him. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is an enigma to our tangibly oriented world. The material world is clueless. But Jesus promises us again in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Jesus was going back to heaven, but the Holy Spirit would be like a father. You know, becoming a Christian is like enrolling in one of those big brother programs. Except the Holy Spirit is now your big brother. He's there 24-7. He takes you places. He helps you open up and talk. He shows you love and guidance. The Holy Spirit's like a big brother. Verse 19, Jesus says, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Remember, Jesus is coming back for them. He says, Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In Spanish, one of the words for goodbye is adios. But adios speaks of a permanent farewell. Whereas hasta luego, or hasta pronto, hasta luego, see you later, hasta pronto, see you soon. Here Jesus isn't saying adios, 
He's saying hasta luego until next time. He's going to come for them quickly. Now, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice the correlation here between obedience and revelation. He reveals his will to those who are inclined to do it. Those who really love Jesus, he says, obey him. And then verse 22, Judas, not the Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him. And in Matthew 10, verse 3, this Judas is also called Thaddeus. So Thad has a question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? The Jews expected the Messiah to be a global leader. The Messiah would gain a worldwide audience. This Judas, this Thaddeus, is a thinker. He's wondering, if Jesus is the Messiah, why is he limiting the news of his ministry to 12 Jews, many of whom are just Galilean fishermen, rather than commanding a worldwide stage? Well, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a cool promise. Love and obey Jesus, and the Father God will make his home your heart. How cool is that? But how is this the answer to Judas's question is what I ask. Jesus is saying to Judas, he'll reach the world one by one. Before Messiah reveals himself to everyone all at once, he'll first come to each and every believing heart. Has he come to your heart? Have you had put your faith in Jesus? Well, verse 24 tells us, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If you say you love God but disregard his words, who are you kidding? These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So much of what Jesus said to the disciples during his ministry just sailed over their heads, kind of went in one ear and right out the other. But it was the Holy Spirit who would bring back to their minds the things he said in the years that followed. Thus their writings relay to us a thorough record of what occurred. The Holy Spirit ensured, ensured that. And this is something the Holy Spirit also does in our lives. So often he assists our memory with some supernatural recall. Has it happened to you that at a crucial moment you recalled a verse, you recalled a name, whatever it might have been, the Holy Spirit just brought it to your forefront of your attention at a crucial moment for the gospel's sake? The Holy Spirit gives us supernatural recall. He brings truths back to our mind when we need to recall them. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know, what the world calls peace is merely an absence of conflict. It's been said peace is the brief interval of time when armies reload. That is true. But the peace of Jesus is so much more. It's this wonderful, all-encompassing assurance. It's a harmony with God, an in-sync feeling between you and God. Have you ever had that feeling? It's a tremendous feeling. It's an inexplicable rest. There's no fuzziness. There's no static on the line. There's total clarity of spirit. There's nothing like it. In this life, all of our questions may not get answered, but if we have the peace of God, we have enough. And then verse 28, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now understand, when Jesus says that my Father is greater than I, he's not denying what he had said earlier, that he and the Father are one. All three members of the Godhead 
are of one substance. God the Father and God the Son are one God. What Jesus addresses in verse 28 is chain of command. The Father is greater in rank, not nature. They are equal in nature, but the Father's greater in rank. Jesus took a volunt- he voluntarily took a submissive role to the Father. It was the roles they chose to play. Think, think of a marriage. I'm the head of my home. Kathy is submissive to her husband. But if anyone who knows us recognizes that Kathy is superior to me in just about every way imaginable, except maybe jar opening. If Kathy ever said, Sandy is greater than I, you'd know she was talking about chain of command or jar opening, not attributes or nature. And the same is true of Jesus. He was submissive to the Father, but he was not inferior in any way. And then verse 29, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. In the hours ahead, man, a spiritual warfare the world hasn't seen before or since will take place. Satan came in the person of Judas to keep Jesus off the cross. But he had nothing that appealed to Jesus, nothing that would tempt him. And here's a secret to you and I overcoming Satan in our lives. For a temptation to be successful, it has to appeal to some desire within us. Thus, guard your heart. If what Satan has to offer you is not what you want, then the temptations bounce off. Notice one other point here. Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. You know, when God created Adam, he gave him dominion or authority over his creation. But when Adam sinned, he lost that dominion to Satan. Satan has usurped the authority that originally belonged to Adam. Thus, the world today is under the control of Satan. Jesus here admits that Satan is the ruler of this world. And of course, this sets up the conflict, the spiritual battle that still rages today. The ruler of this world is going at it, battling with the, for the souls of men with Jesus, the kingdom, the ruler of God's kingdom. And then verse 31, but what the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me my commandment, so I do, arise And let us go from here. And with that, they end their conversation in the upper room. And the talk that follows in chapters 15 and 16 probably occurred as they walked across Mount Zion, down Mount Zion, across the Kidron Valley, and up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they walked, they passed the vineyards. And the vineyards that they passed were probably the backdrop for John chapter 15, one of Jesus' most vital teachings. I like to call this next chapter, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. You know, vineyards dotted the landscape all over Israel at the time of Jesus. In addition to the landscape, on the doors of Herod's temple were engraved a pair of golden vines. It was a symbol for Israel. Old Testament passages like Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 and Jeremiah 2 and Ezekiel 19 and Hosea 10 depicted Israel as God's vine. And God expected fruits of righteousness from his people. And yet this fruitfulness never materialized from Israel. Israel was a barren vine that God promised to punish by uprooting it from his vineyard. This is why earlier, remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree, for it also was a symbol of God's rejection of Israel. Judaism was on its way out, in essence. It was barren. It was spiritually dead, incapable of producing good grapes. In its place, God was planting a new vine, the true vine. And it may have been with the silhouette of that barren, cursed fig tree in the background that Jesus now identifies the true vine here in chapter 15. Verse 1. I 
am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Now remember, God's initial plan was to graft the Gentiles into the vine of Judaism. Yet Israel was barren. Legalism, ritualism, hypocrisy had choked out the vine. A change was needed. God planted Jesus in Israel's place. And that's why today we become part of God's vineyard by being grafted into a person, not born into a family. In Christ, we're branches on God's vine. We've been merged with Christ. And we now receive His life. The Father manages our growth and our pruning. Verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now we're going to observe a progression in this passage from fruit to more fruit to much fruit. For apparently the gardener here, the vine, the vine dresser, is after fruit. He's not interested in leaves. He wants fruit. And thus, if a branch refuses to abide in the vine, what does the gardener do? He cuts it off. Let me jump ahead to verse 6. Here's what's done to the discarded branch. He is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And folks respond to verse 6 by saying, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible teach eternal security? And I say, absolutely. As long as you're abiding in the vine, you're eternally secure. If your faith is in Jesus... If you're resting in his righteousness, if you're looking to his love, as long as you're, you chill in his will and hang on to his grapes and his goodness, then certainly you are set forever. There's no doubt. You are eternally secure in Christ. But if there's no fruit in your life, and it doesn't really matter if it never took, you never took root or if your roots have dried up. But if there's no fruit in your life, if you're dead on the vine, the vine dresser is going to cut you off and cast you away. For he wants fruit. He can't waste sap on a branch that's not going to bear fruit. Which brings up another question. What is fruit? And here's my best definition. Fruit is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit's activity in my life. In other words, it's the evidence of faith. And it includes love and joy and peace and good kindness and patience and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit, self-control and the like. But it also includes good works, even the power to be a witness. And the sap in the vine is pushing these things out at all times. The Holy Spirit is that sap, the life in the vine. And the Holy Spirit is pushing His power and influence out through our lives in a whole smorgasbord of wonderful ways. We should be bearing fruit. But for a vine to reach maximum yield, long before the harvest, it has to be pruned to get the sap to the fruit and not waste it on fueling the foliage. The dead wood, the excess greenery has to be lopped off. The pruning takes place in the wintertime before the sap rises. When the cold weather beats the sap down into the roots, that's when the vine dresser cuts back the branch. And guess what? It hurts. It's painful. If the vineyard could talk, you'd hear awful screams. And when God prunes or disciplines us, it too is painful. See, our identity gets connected to old habits. Unnecessary busyness gets addictive. And so when God cuts back distractions in our lives, at first we think, man, he's killing me. Next time you're out in the parking lots, notice the crack myrtles by the front entrances. At this past workday, somebody went to work on those crack myrtles. They got pruned. I mean, really pruned. Every green twig got lopped off. You look at them, you think they're dead, but they're not. In fact, they are poised for greater growth. For if a plant wants to prosper, it can't bypass the pruning process. 
Sometimes when we're being pruned, we think God is angry with us, but he's not. He only prunes where he sees fruit. He wants more fruit, even much fruit. The Rhine River Valley produces some of the best grapes in the world. And in the winter, the valley is the coldest area in Germany. It's a wind tunnel that captures the cold northern air and it channels it through the vineyards. There's a saying in the vineyard, the colder the better. The colder the winter, the tougher the skins of the grapes and the softer and sweeter its fruit. Remember that the next time God sends you through a harsh season, through some severe pruning. Hey, God loves you. He's not angry with you. He just wants more fruit. Jesus continues in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The grapes in the vineyard were cleanest in the spring after the winter rains. And calendar-wise, it was spring for the disciples. Remember, they were eating the Passover. But from a spiritual perspective, it was also springtime. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to atone for their sin. They'll be made righteous through his sacrifice. And this will begin their growth. In the vineyard, the branches are cleaned in the spring. Then all that's needed in the summer months for the growth to occur is for them to abide in the vine. As it gets hotter, the sap rises and the fruit blossoms. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, Abide in me and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide, it means to rest or to stay. You know, you never see a branch on a vine struggling or straining to grow. You never see that. To bear fruit, all they do is abide. And the same is true for a Christian. It's not up to us to produce spiritual fruit. Our job is just to cultivate our connection to the vine. It's the vine that supplies the life. You know, whenever I play golf and I, and I really try to hit it hard, I really try to kill the ball, oh my, I always hook it. I always hook it. Never fly straight. The key to a good golf swing is to just let the club head do the work. Just meet the ball squarely. Make good contact and that ball will fly. And this is good advice in the Christian life. Don't overswing and try too hard as if it's up to you. Don't underswing and become lethargic or apathetic. Just make good contact. Meet the Savior daily. Let His Spirit supply you with His power. In reality, a branch has little to do with growing grapes. Grapes just happen when the branch is properly connected to the vine. And we grow by trusting in our connection to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Understand we're the analogy here is that of a vine. We're vine, not a pine. You know, with pine wood, you can build things. You can do things with pine. But with a vine, it's too knotty. It's too twisted to use as any kind of building material. All a vine is good for is bearing grapes. And likewise, without the Spirit rising up within us and bearing fruit in our lives, we're worthless. You know, you think the purpose God has for you is all this stuff you're doing, all these things you're building, all this business that you're involved in and so forth. Don't you realize that the real purpose for your life is to bear fruit? You're a vine. That's what vines do. They bear fruit. This is what his purpose for you is. I like verse 5 coupled with Luke chapter 1 verse 37. When you put these two verses together, they become two of the most important verses in the Bible. We read here that Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. But then Luke tells us, with God, nothing will be impossible. That's the combination we need to remember. Without me, without Jesus, we can do nothing. But with Jesus, nothing is impossible. Well, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, 
and realize this can happen. You can start out in faith, but not continue in faith. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Notice abiding and asking go hand in hand. The branch knows what it needs. It wants more sap. And likewise, you and I, we can ask God for a greater outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Verse 9, for as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And here's the key to us loving God. Just stay put. Just stay in a place where you're absorbing his love for you. How do you stay in the love of God? By by abiding, by trusting in him. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Spiritual growth is about abiding and obeying. Love and obedience go hand in hand. Now, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, And that your joy may be full. Notice this. Jesus' joy is that we bear fruit. I love the taste of sweet and juicy red grapes. It's my favorite snack. I can sit there and just eat a whole bag of red grapes. You know, grapes are sometimes called God's candy. I like that. And in this regard... I'm just like Jesus, for he too is most joyful when we're most fruitful. When he can see the grapes and enjoy the grapes on our lives. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus will prove that the very next day on the cross. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. The Greek word here translated friends was used to refer to the king's court, his most trusted advisors. If you want to live close to Jesus, follow his orders. Let's trust in Jesus. Let's also want Jesus to trust us. For no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Servants are hard hands. They're, they're, they're employees, in essence. They have no stake in the business, no skin in the game. They're given a job, and when it's done, they go home. They're told only what they need to know. But a friend is a co-owner. The owners confide in each other. They have a stake in the company and in its success. And here Jesus promotes his disciples from mere wage earners to co-owners. He's up in the ante for their involvement in his kingdom by drawing them closer to himself. Saying, I'm going to be more intimate with you now, now that you're friends and not just servants. You graduate when you go from being just a, a servant of Jesus to being his friend. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You know, in the first century, it was customary for the Jews to choose their own rabbi. But Jesus tells his disciples that he's the one that chose them, not vice versa. And he tells them why. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Why is it we're surprised when we're persecuted? Oh, we're shocked. But the world didn't pat Jesus on the back. Why do we expect we're going to receive any better treatment? Jesus says, if the world hated me, the world will hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here when Jesus uses the the word world, he's not talking about the planet per se, 
but this ungodly, rebellious spirit of the age that shows up even in our culture today. And Jesus says the world loves its own. It hates to be corrected, thus it grows fangs when it's opposed. It persecutes those who go against it and who go against the grain. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If you choose to follow Jesus, expect this world to treat you as it treated Jesus. He says, but all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know him who sent me. You know, throughout history, the church has always considered it an honor to be persecuted for Jesus' name's sake. I often think, would I consider it an honor if I was taken to the town whipping post? My back was cut to ribbons for Jesus' sake. In the 1600s, a man named Obadiah Holmes of Rhode Island, he broke ranks with the State Church of England. He held a prayer meeting in his home. And as punishment, the governor ordered him to be flogged. He was tied up in downtown Boston and beaten so severely, the only way he could lie down was on his elbows and his knees. And yet with the last lash, Holmes shouted, Gentlemen, you have whipped me with roses. And if his torture had been a trophy to him, if he had considered an honor, I wonder how we would respond. Throughout history, Christians have been honored by persecution. And then verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. Reject Jesus and you hate the Father in heaven. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. And he quotes here from two Psalms, Psalm 35 verse 19 and Psalm 69 verse 4. They hated me without a cause. And so the chapter ends, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And these last two verses will be the first two verses we discuss next week. How about that?